Terrorism comes in many forms, but almost always it is justified by the terrorists as a continuation of war by other means, the weak fighting asymmetrically against the strong. The barrier to entry is low, however, so that terrorist actors often have goals far more confused than the terrorist acts themselves. Such is the case of the events portrayed in today's film, which recounts the true story of the 1976 hijacking and dramatic rescue at Entebbe. A motley crew of Germans and Palestinians commandeer an Air France flight from Tel Aviv to Paris, rerouting it to Uganda, and leverage their captives in order to demand the immediate release of 52 imprisoned Palestinian militants. But Israel has a policy of not negotiating with terrorists, and Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Minister of Defense Shimon Peres clash over their response, particularly after the terrorists separate the Jewish passengers from the others. As the days tick by, a bold military plan is hatched to send commandos to raid the airport facility where the hostages are kept. But it's unclear if the hostages will survive, either their time in captivity or the aggressive plan to save them. No matter the outcome, it's a plan with consequences that will ripple decades into the future. From Focus Features and director Jose Padilla, and hitting theaters March 16th, 2018. Is one podcast worth 50 revolutionaries? We'll find out as we review Seven Days in Entebbe. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that we're just going to keep making unless you eventually try to negotiate with us. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. So this is a special bonus episode, and we're doing it as a bonus because this is like a new movie that is just about to come out. Yeah, should we disclose how we were able to see this movie? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think like anybody that reviews movies professionally we got screeners of this film from the studio yeah evidently we uh we have fans already and some of them have the kind of power that uh that allow screeners of their films before the premiere date but i think one thing is is sure uh we can't be bought with your screeners (laughs) you can't buy a favorable review from us so uh so we're gonna we're gonna give it to you straight i don't know i think john would be interested in hearing the number before before we say we can't be bought right what's your number john i've got a fuck you number you can (laughs) you can absolutely buy me for for a certain thing it depends on what you want me to do there's always a price an air france a300 is (laughs) is your price the thing is the, the the maintenance charges would kill me trying to keep that plane in the air yeah. Uh, no, I uh, I would like to lodge a formal complaint here in the middle of the beginning of this show where I say that I yeah, I don't understand you content uh, shovelers <laughs> and uh, and the, this is this idea of reviewing a, a a movie that we got on a screener is a violation of our the whole principle of our show and I'm going into this <laughs> kicking and screaming. Also, I didn't enjoy watching a movie that had like an overlay across the top that basically said. By watching this movie, you are essentially stealing it. You should be lucky to be alive. And it had my name on it and a serial yeah. number and all this stuff. I was just like, yeah, it's got your IP address printed on yeah. over the over the footage, so that if you attempted to copy it and redistribute it, 
they would know who did it. Yeah, I, I was like, I'm watching your movie as a favor to you. Like, give me a good version of it at least. This is a show about a movie about hostage taking that has one of the hosts as a hostage himself. I feel like a hostage. <laughs> I felt like a hostage the whole time. Anyway, I've lodged my complaint. So this is a, a true story about an airplane hijacking in the 70s, which was like the golden age of airplane hijacking. Uh, I don't know if either of you guys have read The Skies Belong to Us. No. I've read it's, All, all uh, Your Base Are Belong to Us. <laughs> <laughs> Great book by Brendan I. Kerner uh, about like the, uh, about, you know, one particular hijacking in the 70s, but like, in the 70s, like, every week, new planes were being hijacked. Like, while that kind of, that book kind of focuses on domestic hijacking, this is a film about a hijacking uh, of a plane on its way from Tel Aviv to Paris. And it touches on a lot of things, but one of them is, like, the strange relationship between West German ultra-leftists and Palestinian PFLP members who teamed up to do this hijacking. I guess the idea was that they would use the hostages to negotiate for the release of both West German leftist terrorists who were in jail and also Palestinian terrorists who were in jail. Um, but it wound up like the like and this film like kind of strains our definition of a war film, but it ends with like a really in, I mean, and, and a raid that really happened, a really insane raid on this airport in Uganda where the hostages are like the rest of the hostages were being held. It's sort of a terrorism all-star game situation. Like, I, I, I can rarely recall a time when, when two distinct orgs have worked together before like this on a mission. Yeah. It's an interesting film in that, like, the the A story is the hijacking, and I would say that the protagonists from the film's perspective are the German terrorists. I sort of felt like the A story was Yoni Netanyahu and his lady friend at home having domestic conflict. <laughs> yeah, he really, he really does not... Uh, does not feel great about the fact that he's missing her dance recital. To he go. will do anything to get out of going to that recital. <laughs> <laughs> Up to and including invade Uganda. It's a it's very confusing in the narrative of the film, but that character is not Yoni Netanyahu. It's not. It's garbled, so I understand why you think it is. But that character is just Joe, or rather, like uh, Hayam soldier guy. Huh. Like he's not, he's just random soldier with dancer girlfriend. Yoni Netanyahu was the, was the kind of like, uh, rakish commander of the commando group that you only, you didn't see, he wasn't featured. You didn't see him a bunch and he took a bullet to the chest. Yoni was like the hard ass of the group, uh, who was constantly like extolling his very serious, militaristic ways under the group he's he's telling people to take the training more seriously because what they're going into uh is kind of a nightmare right he was the boss man so just just um it's important to to make that distinction because the the 
the young soldier that we follow all the way through the training is just like anonymous um right anonymous josh <laughs> is that how he's credited in the, yeah. the end of the movie anonymous josh it's like uh it's like you know it's like joe smith or whatever yeah anonymous josh this storyline though with the with the soldier and his girlfriend in what is truly the sea story to this thing i was irritated to keep going back to it uh and away from the raid and and moreover like the idea of cross-cutting and visual metaphor used throughout the film was also something that just sort of took me out of the tension of what should be a super intense uh heist slash raid slash war film so the dance recital plays this bigger than you would think role in the film takes up a lot of screen time and is intercut with the raid at the end and uh I like I really wondered like is this like a really famous dance like what the meaning of intercutting the two things was kind of eluded me unless it's just like the most pretentious possible way of saying these guys going and putting their lives on the line make Israel safe for people who are doing something as meaningless as this crazy dance <laughs> it he is it is a famous dance uh the the choreographer is named Ohad uh Naharan and he's like the Israeli uh, master of modern dance. Wow. It is not at all contemporaneous with the events of this film. Um, and it's from a piece called Minus 16, which is a long piece. Uh, the piece that we see repeatedly in this film is just an excerpt from it, but an extremely powerful excerpt. I have so much to say about this movie, I can't even... I'm just, I'm like, <laughs> I'm just sitting here eating pickles, not sure where to start. It's an extremely powerful dance. Yeah. Like, as soon as it appears on the screen, you're like, wow, this is, this is dynamite. And that dance performance has so little place in this film. Like, it has less to do with this movie than almost anything else you could have put in there, including Oscar Mayer Wiener commercials. <laughs> like, the in intercutting it during the raid, I actually had to turn the sound off on my computer and cover my eyes in horror because the I was so, like, the film has built up to this fucking raid. It's the whole point of the film. And then we have to endure this filmmaker's creative choice to dramatize what is already the single most dramatic commando raid in history by like slicing it up with this, <laughs> this dance performance as as though we're all we we needed it to be like really punctuated like how it, how how the tempo was ratcheted up or so i mean i don't it's like one thing has all the stakes and one right. thing has no stakes like none whether or not the dance performance succeeds or not. Well, I, I would argue that, that anyone who's ever had a, uh, a wife or girlfriend irritated that you've missed their, their big performance, I think, I think you would understand just how high those stakes really are. You're late, man. Always late. Also, the timeline of the dance story, the aircraft was hijacked, and six days later, the commando raid happened. But on the timeline of the of the dance story, at the beginning of the of the argument between um, the dancer and her husband, 
She's like, I got the part I wanted. <laughs> and six days later, the show debuts this incredibly rehearsed show to, you know, command performance to a standing ovation. Right. So I don't know if you guys have ever dated a dancer, but uh, it doesn't happen that quick. As, as much as I tried when I was in art school, <laughs> no dancers were taking. I should have taken business classes. No, you should have been a rock and roller. <laughs> So we've talked about the A and the C storylines. Um, well, we, story we need to talk about the A storyline a, a lot more, but let's talk about the B storyline. So the B storyline is the deep arguments happening within the Israeli cabinet about how to deal with this, and specifically the difference of opinion, opinion between Shimon Perez and Itzhak Rabin, who are the uh, defense minister and the prime minister, respectively. I really liked the tension between them as much as the A story tension. The idea that, uh, and I don't know how accurate this portrayal was, but the idea that the Minister of Defense would would forward this idea in a way that is totally free of responsibility for himself and utterly the responsibility of the Prime Minister as a as a sort of underhanded way, it, it seemed like a power grab to me. It, at times I wondered if... Shimon Perez really wanted to do this or if he really wanted to become prime minister of Israel in the wake of the mission's failure. Yeah, it really plays like a game of chess where like the the stakes are like the destruction of Itzhak Rabin as a politician and his entire perspective on things. Right. Well, you guys, uh, the film is doing a very good job in that case in this respect because these two guys... Perez and Rabin, they're, they're first-generation founders of Israel, and they were in political competition with each other their entire lives. Perez went on to be prime minister of Israel uh, after uh, Rabin had to resign in shame because his wife had some kind of, like, um, his wife was engaged in some kind of dance performance. <laughs> um, after Golda Meir died, it was a choice between these two guys who became prime minister. So they were like tussling and um, trying to one up one another and in constant competition with each other through their whole political lives. Then they had these com competing philosophies like we never uh, negotiate with terrorists versus if we never negotiate with terrorists, then we're constant. We're, well, then our nation will always be at war. And I think that played out not just in back rooms, but that was visible to right. the citizens. It was like... That was they face the nation terms of the argument. Yeah, and, and it remained the terms of the arg argument within Israel, you know, up until today. And Netanyahu, whose whole political career, you, you could argue, was a result of the fact that his brother was killed in this raid. Right, his big brother, who's portrayed in this film. Right. Uh, that that's what propelled him into a political career. I mean, this is the beginning of of two decades of of real focus on on the belief that there was a solution to the Palestinian question. In terms of like showing versus telling, though, like there's so much telling in the A story among the the terrorists and the and the hostages, and there's so little telling between that conflict between uh, Rabin and Perez, and there's there's mostly showing there, and I think that makes their conflict far more effective. I thought this part of the movie was really strong. 
Yeah, and they just have great chemistry on screen. Like they do so much with little looks and right and uh, and proximity. Like like you see them together and they're they're shooting those flinty looks at each other, and then they're apart for a lot of the movie too. Like when Perez is in the bunker, basically with the military guys listening to how the mission is going, like their separation creates an anxiety as well. Cause you know, he's acting, you know, outside of, of the veil of leadership. Yeah. He's sort of a, a free agent there. Uh, although the, the, the hair piece that the actor playing Perez was wearing at the yeah. very start of the film, the bride of Frankenstein hair piece. Yeah. He, he looked, uh, he looked like John Travolta in battleship earth and it's like, where, and I, and I, I thought, is that the hair choice they're going to make through this whole film? And then you never see it again. Very strange. <laughs> but you, you said a mouthful, Adam. There is a lot of exposition in this film. A lot of people basically explaining what's going on to one another. Right. Where, they, where each person clearly know, should know the story. And the other person's yeah. like, you know what we're doing here. Let me explain. <laughs> and that takes a lot of the forward motion out of the film. Because it seems like the assumption is that the viewer has no idea what who any of these people are or what's happening in a film that is already very comfortable with showing title screens, uh, and, and written exposition, they could have, they could have given this information differently and streamlined the story in that way. Give us the star Wars scroll up top and then drop us into the middle of the hijacking. (laughs) With the star Wars music. <laughs> the 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 A story that you're describing, the one where the German revolutionaries, the Palestinians, you know, Carlos the Jackal, and uh, all these, and and the Bader Meinhof gang, all kind of tumbling together in this weird leftist revolutionary circle. Um, it's a super complicated thing to try and explain, and a one that deserves multiple films of its own. But suffice to say that the IRA and the Palestine Liberation Organization and ETA, the Basque separatist group, and these sort of communist, um, Marxist, Leninist revolutionary groups, urban revolutionary groups in Italy and Germany who believed that the late 60s German state was basically just a Nazi proxy and that their their revolutionary goal needed to be to overthrow Western capitalism. All of these groups with all their completely different agendas formed a common cause during this period because they loosely understood that their ultimate goal, the big goal was to overthrow the patriarchal capitalist um, overlords. And the fact that, and, and you see it in this movie a couple of times where the where a couple of, of the popular front for the liberation of Palestine guys say like, why are you even doing this? Like we we're doing this to get our houses back. You're doing this because you think that you're guilty for the Holocaust. That's not a, that's not the same justification. But that was that was going through <laughs> the whole 70, 60s, 70s and 80s. These groups were all training with each other and giving material aid to one another. And it and it, it didn't make sense then and it doesn't make sense now, but it's real. It really happened that way. 
there seems to be like an attraction between these groups, like uh, like anarchists jo- joining the WTO protests. Like, if something big is happening, you want to be a part of that big thing. Is that an oversimplification of no. of how these relationships work? I think that's exactly it. I mean, if you're if you want to throw grenades to solve your political problems, you find the other people who want to throw grenades to solve their political problems. If, even if you win. Then what are you going to do? I mean, those groups would immediately go to war with each other if they won. Yeah. And that was very interesting at the end of the movie. And, and I and I looked into it and it and it turns out to be it turns out to be true that the only terrorist left in the airport when the Israelis arrived was the German guy, Bose. So in the actual raid, Bose was the only guy in the terminal and he did turn to them with his gun raised, like it, the, the whole premise that if the Israelis come, we're going to kill the hostages. He right. was the only one in a position to actually accomplish that. And he turned to the to the hostages when he realized it was the Israelis. And he said, get down, get down, get down instead of shooting them. And I, th- I think if that room had had the popular front guys in it, it might have been a different outcome. Right, a lot more people would have died. Yeah. I mean, the movie does a lot to humanize the German terrorists here, and the Bose character is definitely the one who is having the most um, complicated relationship with what he's doing. I mean, Rosamund Pike is the other German terrorist, and she, like, they kind of make a head faint, like it's going to be tough for her to to do the terrorism at the beginning. And then it turns out that she's like the most steely eyed and hard hearted of the gang. I wonder like what you guys think about the idea of humanizing people who are doing, who are, you know, taking civilian hostages and advancing a political cause by putting the lives of innocent people at risk, like specifically putting the lives of innocent people at risk. I was resistant to the film's uh, forces in that way, but I was also grateful that uh, the flight crew was given almost the same amount of time to develop that sort of empathy for, like, and getting to know them. Like, mm-hmm. the story of the flight crew, I feel like, could could get even more time here, mm-hmm. and what little time they got, I thought, was was really powerful stuff. If the film's intention was to engender warm feelings for Bridget and Wilfred like that's not a thing that happens but I don't have warm feelings for either side as the film portrays them like you you get close to the boyfriend guy who's training for the mission and you care about him because of time given but you know nothing about him outside of his relationship to his girlfriend you don't really know Perez and Rabin outside of their their conflict like I wanted to know these people a little more and you really don't and I think that really hurts a viewer's uh, ability to feel the amount of empathy that a story about this conflict should really engender like it felt it felt like a like a flat heist movie to me instead of what I think they were going for which is like a powerful story of terrorism and an audacious rescue mission you know i'm not sure i agree with the film's choice to humanize like people that did a 
a horrible crime like this? Like, is there some reason we should be empathizing with, like, a guy who publishes books in West Germany, like, deciding that publishing books isn't enough and he's going to go get a Kalashnikov and take over an airplane? Well, I think there are two there are two forces at play there in that. And one of them is that there's always been a tendency, I think, to try and even out the two sides and say, well, the Israelis over here, they did a lot of bad things and the terrorists over here did a lot of bad things. And but they both, you know, love their children, too. So, you know, they're both fairly equivalent or whatever. You know, it's this it's this uh, attempt to make the two sides even. And you hear the terrorists a few different times justify their cause by saying Israel's got an army and no one listens to us and we can't fight them on the ground because they just cream us. And so we're driven to this kind of gesture in order to, you know, it, in order to weaponize what we can weaponize. It's the same logic that the 9-11 hijackers used. Like, we turned these into cruise missiles, basically, because we don't have access to cruise missiles otherwise. Yeah, and the Israel military nuclear agency is is one of the reasons for that. Like, these are the weapons that we have available. Right. Israel has nukes. And what that story doesn't tell, and what this story didn't tell, is that in 1973, there was a Yom Kippur war where Egypt and Syria, like, both tried to demolish Israel. In 1972, there was the Munich Olympics. Um, and in 1968, there was the Six-Day War. And in in all of these, well, at least in the those two wars, like, multiple Arab countries used enormous like tanks and airplanes and guns and weapons and missiles to try to wipe Israel off the map and failed. So it isn't really that the, that the cause of Palestine doesn't have an army. It's just that those armies didn't do a very good job of fighting the Israelis. I was surprised slash not surprised at how neutral the film was. I don't think you can get a Hollywood film made that takes a side in this conflict. <laughs> I think that would be very hard. The the fact that that this film is um is essentially like scored by the artistic director of like the the Tel Aviv dance company. <laughs> it really it 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 shows you whose side it's on, right? There's no there was no like Palestinian dance company uh right. intercut with the raid. So it's But when you read reviews of this film written by uh by Israeli press they excoriate it for not making their side heroic enough. Yeah. I felt watching it that a lot of the revolutionary talk I recognized it as a lot of the same talk that you read on Twitter right now about hmm. about current events that we're past the you know we're living in a situation where we're the status quo is past the point of reform that the only thing that will enact real change is revolution and that the systems that are in power are intractable. It's a, it's a familiar refrain that comes around every 40 years. So I, I felt like, unlike a lot of movies that feature these sort of revolutionary characters, 
even from the very beginning, they're just kind of sitting there sweating, wondering whether they're doing the right thing. And I don't think those people in real life had that many doubts about what they were doing. That motivation is so interesting to me. It's it's sort of like a sports movie analogy where the coach tells the the recruit, you're not good enough to play on my team. Like you're too small <laughs> or you're too slow. Like yeah. being called bourgeois, like too bourgeois to be a terrorist was an interesting motivation. And it informed everything that Bozen and Kuhlman do for the rest of the film. Like they, they want to throw it in his face. Well, I feel like Kuhlman's motivated by feeling guilt over her part in Meinhof getting arrested. Like she's she's like she's out for Rwenge mm-hmm. against like the whatever forces of the universe she's mad at. I also saw this as an opportunity for her to become her. Yeah. Anyone who tries to resist me will be shot. The other like football in this movie is like who's the Nazi? And the revolutionaries are, you know, they keep saying like, oh, you know, the Israelis have inherited the the uh, the mantle of Nazism because they treat the Palestinians the way they were treated by the Germans. But then they're very worried and uh, and conscientious of the fact that they are Germans who are threatening the lives of a of a hundred Jews and worried about how that's going to play and you know trying to trying to figure out a way to you know kill a hundred jews without having the label of nazi stuck on them like like that's the real problem (laughs) you know and i mean like the bader meinhof people weren't were not un-nazi like right i mean isn't one of them now like avowed neo-nazi in germany Ah, wow, I didn't know that. I haven't followed their subsequent careers. But, you know, there were there were like basically several generations of Red Army faction people. There was that first generation that almost completely was imprisoned and killed uh, by the West German cops. And then there was the second generation. And these people kind of represent the type of people that were in the second generation who were admirers of that first generation. But you know what they were doing mostly was robbing banks and shooting judges in the, you know, they'd pull up next to your car on a motorcycle and shoot you with a pistol. Symbionese liberation army of Germany kind of a deal. Yeah. And they, but, but they were super popular in the seventies. It was a weird time when Horst Mahler is uh, a founding RAF member and a vocal neo-Nazi and Holocaust denier. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, nice job, Horst. <laughs> I guess this is what happens when you create alliances between these groups, right? You can't... Yeah. Like, once once you let one of those guys into the club, like, they're, they're suddenly the face of the team. It's the ultimate problem of these sort of intellectual movements, uh, intellectual revolutionary movements, which is that they always imagine... It, the, the, the people that are involved are a bunch of university students, mostly very privileged. And they imagine that they're going to spark a revolution where the masses who they imagine are, you know, this like disgruntled army of uh, of poor people who are going to see the logic of their cause and rally to their flag. This this the masses are going to rise up. But what really happens is it's a bunch of like spoon-fed intellectual college twits who 
form these little revolutionary cells and they kill some judges, they throw some grenades, they rob some banks, but it never incites the revolution that they think it's going to. And, and the Red Army faction, like they enjoyed a lot of media support in Germany in the 70s because Germany was wrestling with all these, you know, questions of like, there actually were Nazis in the German, in like the German uh, administration. Nazis were everywhere still. It was only 30 years after the end of the war. These, the, these people had careers. Yeah. And so the German nation was still like, are we Nazis? And these students came along and they were like, you're Nazis. And they and the German people were like, I guess we are. But then they looked at the Red Army faction. And they were like, but these guys are nincompoops. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it was it was super complicated. And the fact that there was that it interacted with this international situation where the you know, the IRA was like, get England out of Ireland. And the PLO yeah. was like, Israel's got their boot on our neck. And the Germans were like, my kid doesn't respect me. I'm going to get some angry letters. <laughs> <laughs> I took a trip to Northern Ireland when I was in college, and uh, there are a big thing in Belfast anyways, is there's like a uh, cultural of political murals and uh, all of the, all of the like IRA sympathetic murals, uh, you know, a, a lot of them have like, that you know socialist workers of the world unite and plo you know are struggling with the same thing we are struggling with messaging on it and uh it was just like such a such a head trip coming from the u.s where catholics are like conservative typically and are more associated with entrenched power than revolutionism you know well and, and that's and and that's the thing about revolution right what's the plan after the revolution right and the plan is always like, well, we haven't really thought about that, but after the revolution, we're going to solve everything. That's the only plan, right? After the revolution, we'll deal with that later. Boy, does that sound contemporary. Right? <laughs> you get to be a real hero during the revolution or before the revolution because you're going to fix everything. You're going to give free college to everybody and, and free medicine and so forth and so on. And you don't have to explain how you're going to do it. You just know that you will because you're going to do a better job than the bastards who are in. I think that the thing about this film is like I never I mean and, and anything to do with Israel Palestine is I never feel confident in any opinion I have about it because you know it always comes back to there's two religious ideologies that seem like incompatible that form a lot of the argument and then you can like individually judge the actions of the different groups and then, but, it, but it's never, it's not a religious war at all. I mean, the Palestine situation is a land war. It's just a, you I, know. Oh, I totally agree. I just think that, like, you can't, like, logic and sense don't get involved in the, you know, talking about potential solutions. And there's also just so much propaganda surrounding it. Oh, like, the Israelis are an apartheid state and they're, you know, they're just as bad as the Nazis. And then, you know, the Palestinians are all terrorists and they, like... Uh, have these peaceful neighbors that they just lob rockets at and and like i i lose track you know like like you know and i i have a jewish family like i go to holidays and like hear this argument all the time and i'm i just like sit in the corner of the room silently because i'm like so lost you know yeah well and you've got 
You've got Lebanon, which has its own questions. There were a lot of Christians living in Palestine who are Arabs. A lot of the, you know, the two founders of the popular front for the liberation of Palestine were not Muslim. They were both Christian guys. And then get this. My wife, when she has like a like a long sleeve, thin sweater that she takes and, you know, like ties around her waist, but then puts on if she gets cold, she calls that a purely for layering purposes or a PFLP for short. And I'm like, is that really like, (laughs) is that coined with the knowledge of the PFLP? Everyone's getting letters. We're getting letters. <laughs> Your wife's getting letters. Yeah. <laughs> PFLP, podcast for lame people. <laughs> You've just insulted our audience, John. It's a, it's super, it's, it's super confusing because it's meant to be confusing. And, and there isn't, it's intractable because it's meant to be intractable. You know, the right. There's like forces that benefit from its intractability. Yeah. Like King Hussein of Jordan, who who lost a a lot of territory, lost the West Bank to Israel, um, but got uncomfortable hosting the PLO because the PLO, after they had several victories in their terroristic war against Israel started to advocate for the overthrow of King Hussein because their Marxism <laughs> was like, uh, you know, took like got uh, onto their heads and they were like, you know, oh, we're going to take over Jordan. The PLO was pushed out of Jordan and, and kind of ruthlessly dealt with by King Hussein, not because he disagreed necessarily with their, take on israel but because he thought that they were there because he had to fight their their attempt to destabilize his rule and that happened during a period called black september that was a september when they were just door busting deals at all the big box stores it it was man you could get a honda for zero (laughs) down and zero percent interest but that but black september is what gave the name to the group that killed the israeli olympians and in munich in 72 so that organization was named after some fucking problem they had with King Hussein of Jordan. It had nothing to do with Israel uh, or it had it had something to do with Israel by, you know, like like three kisses away. So and none of it, you know, and that's there's the Shia and there's the Sunni. That's all in there, too. Uh, there's no there's no path to understanding it, I don't think. Like the idea of of war and conflict as tradition, though. Tradition, it, tradition. <laughs> I have always thought of you as the tevia of this podcast, John. <laughs> when those values are are like passed down from from parent to to child, instead of you know being experienced firsthand, how this is a question for the group. We can solve this right now. Like, how do you yeah. stop it? Well, it's amplified, right? When it's passed down. It's amplified right. because you don't remember, you don't remember your family home. You just remember your grandfather's sorrow about it, right. and so you're you're even madder on his behalf. And also, your family home becomes kind of fantastical to you. It's like 
oh, if we got if we got back there, the figs rained down from the heavens. And it's like, well, actually, there wasn't very much water and it kind of smelled like goat shit. But <laughs> um, but let me let me make a suggestion that we not try to solve the Middle East like problems in our in our show. We're going to do a lot more movies about this. Yeah. If you have ideas about how to solve the problems in the Middle East, who should who should we have them tweet at? Jordan and Jesse from Jordan Jesse Go. <laughs> Maximum Fun has that uh, has that phone line for uh, momentous occasions. If you've solved <laughs> the the, uh, the Israel Palestine conflict, you can call two zero six nine eight four four fun. Please do that. Please do not tweet at us or. Alternately, do not leave a negative review on iTunes. I will find you. <laughs> and I can out-philosophize you. And I'm going to outlast you. I couldn't find a goof about this film because uh, it's so new that the oh, pedants right. haven't, haven't filled IMDb with all of the historical inaccuracies. But uh, there's uh, an interesting bit of trivia here. Uh, a lot of the film was shot in Luca Malta at the International Airport, and a a day after the filming wrapped in Malta, a real hijacked Libyan airplane landed very close to where the set was, and the hijackers used replica hand grenades and pistols. Wow. And uh, these were pro-Gaddafi hijackers, apparently. Whoa. All these video games and violent movies just (laughs) creating new hijackers. How do you, how are you a pro-Gaddafi hijacker now i don't know i mean they saw the news right like- <laughs> <laughs> it was uh it was an, a domestic flight within libya it was a libyan airline and uh yeah it sounds like the the hijackers wound up surrendering to the maltese authorities and getting taken into custody because they didn't have any real weapons i guess <laughs> i really like airplane movies and i really like uh commercial airplane movies specifically like all the 70s airport series of films i love those uh-huh. and so i was really excited for to watch this film because i thought a large part of it would take place on the plane or around the plane but really maybe only a quarter of it does yeah sorry plane spotter <laughs> yeah not that i ever have any sort of like hijacking ideation but do you guys <laughs> did you guys think about when they were on board the plane like how would you do it how do you do it? Like, was the was the implementation of the door the thing that stopped all of this? Israel has, like, a great reputation for airline safety now. But I guess the 70s were just kind of before. But famously, they don't have the, the TSA that we do. They, they use actual intelligence. Well, I should, say, I should point out that El Al, the Israeli airline has only ever been hijacked once in 1968 and never again. Well, it sounds like we have a challenge for us, <laughs> gentlemen. <laughs> so the terrorists uh, or ter- terrorism worldwide continued to hijack airplanes, you know, until recent memory, until just recently when some uh, Libyans flew a plane to Malta. But it's never El all. And, yeah. uh, and that says something for the the way they handle their airport security. Yeah, well, I guess this is Air France, right? Right. So. And, and controversially, uh, El Al practices profiling. Yeah. yeah. And and that upsets Americans or it upsets people that, that, uh, that believe profiling is racist. One interesting fact about this plane is that it continued uh, 
in service after this incident uh, until the mid-90s. That's like buying a house that there's been a murder in. Shouldn't you have to disclose that? Like, Yeah. <laughs> it, it flew into the 90s, really? Yeah, it, uh, it transferred ownership to Vietnam Airlines uh, in the mid-90s, and, hmm. uh, and then it was converted into a cargo freighter in the years after that. It's now in storage. So the, uh, the aircraft survived. Wow, survives even. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, you'll see A300s fly around uh, for even domestic cargo carriers like FedEx. They are, uh, they're like 40 years old. Thank God we have you on this show, Adam, to get to the heart of the stuff that viewers are really interested in. I see you plane nerds. (laughs) (laughs) I have control of the plane and everything on it. I want to, before we close, talk about Uganda and Idi Amin, which are, I mean, Amin is like a character in the film, which is pretty wild. And he's kind of the delusional strong man that he was. Um, The Ugandan soldier, like there's like a weird like tacked on thing at the end that like 45 Ugandan soldiers got killed in this raid. Four terrorists, four hostages and 45 Ugandans. It's like, geez, like these guys were, you know, just like I live in Uganda. I'm going to join the military because it's like the only opportunity I have to make any money for my family. And I get stationed as a guard at an airport and I get wasted just because the guy that's in charge of the country made this like completely insane deal with, you know, like he's trying to make like a geopolitical play to get taken more seriously by the Russians. So he deals with the PFLP and I get killed in a raid by Israeli commandos. Like, yikes. Those, those characters are treated as very disposable. So disposable that you don't even see them die. There's just like machine gun into the dark and we're left to, imagine 45 of them dying but what's crazy about this raid is that the israeli commandos also destroyed i think a couple of dozen mig 19s and mig 21 uh fighter planes that were on the ground at this airport which was which also doubled as a uh, ugandan air force base that was like three quarters of the ugandan defense budget just right out the window right so it was they didn't just grab these guys these hostages throw them on the plane and get out they also had another whole squad that that basically like the ugandan pearl harbor is it the idea that they have to kill those planes because if they get scrambled there's no way the israeli planes will outrun them yeah that was the logic right That that they didn't want them in their rear but like that would be pretty impressive to watch even from uh from a few miles away like you you don't destroy two dozen fighter planes without leaving a signature on the skyline and i think i think of the 45 ugandans that died in the raid i can't imagine that some of them weren't like stationed over there right i mean there was a this was a major operation once it got going that's bonkers Ben, you're right. Like the the anonymity of the Ugandan army is a is a big part of this film. But I mean, almost as anonymous are are the hostages. I think we get to know one or two hostages total. There's the guy with the star of David necklace who's taken upstairs and tortured, and then there's the old lady with the Holocaust tattoo who who Bose has cigarettes with. Right, and then there's the fam- the family with the little girl that yeah. has to go to the bathroom. Right. That we see repeatedly. But these are so superficial. Like, these are superficial descriptions of people that 
that could have used a little more color, I thought. Yeah. We we really get to know the flight engineer and he seems yeah. like a real like a heroic character. Yeah. If we fleshed out every character we're interested in, I think we would have a four and a half hour movie and that's not something any of us want. Well, you could have taken the dance scenes out and made <laughs> some of that used some of that time. Yeah. That was gonna be my point. Like you give one place and take away from another. Do you guys think that the filmmaker's intention was that those dance scenes serve the function of the 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 girl back home? It, like in so many of the movies we've watched, you know, the the character has like a picture of his of his sweetheart back in the world or whatever. Is that what that's there for? Or I, I felt like that was a um, that was like a flimsy pretense for what seemed to me to be the the director of the film had some experience where he, you know, where he saw Ohad Naharin's dance and was like, that's amazing. And the thing is, it is, like I said at the beginning, it's an incredible dance. And he was like, I want to put that into a movie. <laughs> but the way it's, uh, the way it's put, uh, sliced into that section is incredibly evocative of the end of Apocalypse Now. Mm. Right, where the drums are going, and we're and we're cutting between the ceremony where they're killing the ox with an axe, and then we're back into the temple, and Martin Sheen is face painted black, sweating, and rising up out of the muck with the knife in his teeth. Yeah, all that stuff, and it goes back and forth, back and forth, and the tension ratchets up, and it becomes hallucinatory. And if you look at the way this is staged, it's, you know, it's like shot for shot trying to accomplish that same thing. It's just that it's ill-advised. It's not a situation where the two things are related, the, the flimsy pretext of this, this angry girlfriend. Or, or I think the flimsiest pretext is the one where he says, you know, I fight so you can dance. And we're supposed to like we're supposed to hang our hats on that and be like, yeah, they're fighting so that these so that they can dance. It's like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> they're never affectionate towards each other. And I thought that that uh, that stopped me from having good feelings towards either of them. Yeah. You wanted a sex scene. I know how you are. You're like, oh, these guys are going to bone. Yeah. Like during the dance, I was like, keep taking off clothes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of bad reviews on iTunes, don't don't give a bad review cuz John didn't like it the time I said boning down. <laughs> Somebody was really mad. They were like, "How dare he not like boning down?" <laughs> oh my god, your fans. <laughs> Apparently, according to the reviews on iTunes, I hate that, everything, but I'm yeah. also a liberal cuck. Yeah. That guy's from the the PFBD, the Popular Front for Boning Down. <laughs> <laughs> I hate everything. I'm a skinhead and a liberal cuck. So yeah. if, if you're going to write a negative review on iTunes, you better you better come correct. Cause you, you really contain <laughs> multitudes, John. Uh, the film ends with a couple of title cards showing the postscript of the story. Where, where Niedermeyer gets fragged by his own troops? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish this wasn't the case, but I sort of felt like this was the most powerful part of the film. Were, were all of these threads being tied together. It, it went on to say that Rabin was assassinated in 95 after being a figure who represented a possible reconciliation. He was assassinated by, uh, by an extremist 
who was against that idea. And then uh, Defense Minister Simon Perez, like a man who was portrayed in this film as being uh, kind of a warmonger, uh, became a huge supporter of peace and, and negotiation with Palestine afterwards. So his story totally changes yeah. uh, as he grows older. And then uh, the revelation that Jonathan Netanyahu was the only soldier to die, and he being the brother of Benjamin, Benjamin becoming the prime minister after Rabin's assassination in 96. Like the gathering of all of those threads into a single poignant ending was was really powerful to me. More powerful than the film that came before, I thought. Well, and, and what's even crazier, and what, which, um, which wasn't in those title cards, is that Rabin and Perez and Yasser Arafat, the three of them together shared a Nobel Peace Prize for their work to resolve this conflict. And then the Nobel Committee later expressed regret that they could not take Perez's Nobel Peace Prize back because after they were after he was awarded this he you know he sort of um, pursued a hawkish take on the settlements but you know they got very close to a treaty they got very close to an agreement and it was Arafat that pulled out of it but that seems like a title card that they could have thrown in there. I mean, right. Nobel Peace Prize is, is a nice um, nice yeah. end to the, to the story. And also, there was another future prime minister of Israel that was involved in this raid. Uh, Ehud Barak was in the military at the time and was part of, he was like the, the command center guy in Kenya or something. He was like a forward operating post. Wow. Like he- heading up a forward o- operating post. So it was, this is one of the, this is one of the foundational mythological moments in the state of Israel. The Amin government, uh, in retaliation for this raid, killed like 245 Kenyans who were present in Uganda at the time as like, as like an FU to Kenya for helping the Israelis do this. So they saved 100 people, but then there's there was a little collateral damage, 50 right. Ugandan soldiers and 250 Kenyans. Yeah. So you're saying Idi Amin is not the big bear <laughs> character that we get in this film? Yeah, not a super magnanimous dude. Yeah. Well, should we rate the film, guys? Yeah, I think it's time. Uh, Malton's Law states every film show has to rate the films they watch, and in every episode, I create a custom rating system based on the film we've seen. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if people even know that we have a custom rating system in every episode yet, because I don't think any of those episodes have come out. <laughs> so just for the, for, the, for the kids at home, at some point, like more than 10 episodes maybe into making this show, we realized we weren't rating the films. <laughs> is that right i i remember it as being all the way from the beginning that we rated the movies no we uh oh, wow we have not put out this will be the first episode in which we actually rate a movie <laughs> i think if uh if this comes out next week or whatever no really yeah well that being made clear uh there's a scene in the film where uh where they dispatch a bus of a bunch of airport buses and at times during the film waves of hostages are released and this bus represented freedom to them they've been living in this filthy airport terminal for days and days 
very little is made of their conditions also like i i wanted a little more crisis about their circumstance uh sleeping on a on the on the floor of a terminal in uganda they pretty much leave it to that one pipe of dirty water on the roof Right, exactly. That that pipe is doing a lot of work <laughs> in terms of exposition. But the idea of, of sleeping in this terminal and then seeing that airport bus show up and, and represent the freedom to come, and in the context of the film, not really being sure if that bus was going to lead you to Amin's executioners at the other end. Like, I wasn't... I wasn't totally informed on this operation before seeing the film, so that was a mystery to me. But... Uh, that bus stuck out to me as a thing. And so I'm going to rate the film on a scale of one to five airport buses. <laughs> uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this film two buses. I think I would have preferred uh, a little less of some story, a little more of other story. And I think I would have slid the movie forward a little bit in terms of its timeline. I want to start on the plane during the hijacking. And I want to see a little more of the conflict between uh, the hostages and the terrorists and make that more of the film's point than than all of the peripheral conflict that we get. Hmm. Stuff that really breaks up the tension in a way that is unfortunate. This should be an extremely intense film, and it is not. And so that is the reason for Two Buses. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Two Buses feels like the right number of buses to me as well um that said like i think the movie might be a rewatch for me like i might uh i might return to this uh in the future i felt like it was an interesting portrayal of a period of history i wish i knew more about and yeah i thought the raid was uh interesting i, I really liked seeing them rehearse for the raid like there are all these yeah. scenes where they're practicing the thing that they're gonna go do and they've like They've like really like set it up so that they have, you know, stuff all in the right place so that they can actually drive through in a in a jeep and uh, that Mercedes limo scene right. was fun where they couldn't get a black one so they had to paint it. Yeah, so uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fun stuff and a lot of interesting stuff. I don't think it's a great film, but it's uh, I'd say it was interesting enough that I think I might I might watch it again. Yeah, I. It's important to remember that the events of this picture took place in six days or seven days, as the title would imply. <laughs> seven days, right? <laughs> um, and it ended on like the day that they were rescued. The hostages was July fourth, nineteen seventy six. The 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 American bicentennial. I mean, I remember this happening in real time because it was fascinating to me as an an eight year old kid. I mean, this was a this was a big story, and the bicentennial was a really big story. It was all anyone was talking about, but this raid was like the first of its kind. You know, phenomenal. It happened in six days, and the movie does a bad job of of really showing that because the way it flops around and goes into the backstory of the terrorists, and you don't really get that feeling that that you're talking about, Adam. That tension of like. You know, the commandos were basically built a replica of the airport and were training and the prime minister. I mean, the, they were already in the air and yeah. the cabinet hadn't even made the decision whether or not to send them. That was how, you know, how like down to the wire this was. It was like, all right, you guys just like start going. And when you're halfway across the Red Sea, we're going to tell you like, 
come back or go. That's pretty. That's pretty intense. Yeah, the the fuse for that tension is twenty minutes long, and I think what I was advocating for was like a full ninety minutes of fuse. So I agree with you guys. Like the dance cut, the dance intercut with the raid is so bad. It's so egregious. Such a poor decision on the part of the filmmakers. But it swings to the fences, you know, like it's it's but in the worst possible way. And and, and it does a disservice to this incredible dance performance. Also, um, it's just wrong. It's just the wrong way to portray this event. And in a way, I would say that that would give the film zero stars like it negates the whole purpose of it. I'm sorry. What are these stars you speak of? Oh, I'm sorry. Buses. <laughs> it gives it zero buses. Who would write a movie with stars? <laughs> but I but I really like the way it introduces all of this uh, this crazy story. And so it bumps it back up to two buses for me because I like people talking about this stuff. I like people watch. I like the idea that people will go watch this and come out of it saying, you know, WTF. And there, the events of this movie are played out in a lot of movies that I hope that we watch as part of our, as part of our program. So we may go back to this again. Um, the, the movie, the last King of Scotland, right? Which was like, uh, an Academy award winning performance by Forrest Whitaker as Idi Amin. It's fictionalized somewhat. The end of that movie happens at Entebbe. And although it's fictionalized, it does a lot better job of telling the story of what it was like in the terminal. And then, Adam, to appeal to you, the movie The Delta Force, starring (laughs) Chuck Norris. Thank you for that. Which is the last time, the last film that Lee Marvin appears in before his death. Lee Marvin. Our hero, the great Lee Marvin. This movie is basically like a comic Rambo, mid-80s Rambo take on Raid at Entebbe, but, but completely garbled and Chuck Norrisified. <laughs> but, it's, but the premise is the same. It's the same. It's just made into like, it's just gibberish, but it's a real, as, a, as Ben would call it, a pork chop movie. Yeah. So I, so I give this thing two buses for no other reason than it sh- that it hopefully precipitates like a broad spectrum of film watching to try and start to get a perspective on all this because it's super crucial to understanding geopolitics. Hey, John, you you were what like ten years old in the mid seventies? Like, do you remember like there were so many of these revolutionary incidents in the world? Like, did they have any kind of impression on you? Uh, at that age or were you too young to really grok all of this no it had a huge impression on me and in the same way that the red army faction and carlos the jackal and the plo in the same way that they were treated kind of heroically in the west german press um they were treated kind of heroically in the radical left in the united states because this was during a time when everything was a American versus Soviet Union geopolitical chess game. And as a young person, these people were extremely 
exotic and cool. They all wore sunglasses. Like if you see a picture of Yasser Arafat in a in a, a press conference in the seventies, he's always wearing like Bono sized sunglasses. They're extremely cool looking, and they have beards, and they carried Kalashnikovs. Um, so in the early eighties, I very much identified with sort of red army faction politics and and the global struggle for revolution i thought of myself as as somebody who was going to sort of take up that story it's one of the reasons i didn't join the military because by the time i got to be a teenager i was so soaked in this idea of global revolution and then the inevitable disillusionment as I studied it more and realized that it was all method and there was no end game. Nobody had a plan. There was not a, a constitution that they were trying to enact. It was just tear down what exists and don't worry about it. We'll figure it out later. And I, I, the disillusionment came like a cold bucket of water when I realized, oh, wait a minute. The last guy I want deciding how elections happen is Carlos the Jackal. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my song Cinnamon by the Long Winters is set in a Red Army faction safe house. It's plausible scenario. I clung to the stretcher. I drew them a It's essentially the story of two people very much like the protagonists of this film. And that's not made explicit in the song. It never says Red Army Faction. Had it been named Paprika, it would have been more overt, (laughs) that imagery, right? (laughs) John, I'm so glad I asked you that question because I wanted to uh, guarantee the hundreds of one-star reviews that we were going to get after this episode came out <laughs> and the uh, and the the legion of messages calling you a, a left-wing cuck well i'm you know i was uh, i was definitely uh, uh my liberal tears would have um would have fertilized the graves of patriots in my in the early 80s and i remain a committed uh liberal but i put down my kalishnikov after I realized that armed global revolution was not really very well thought out. And it remains not very well thought out. I'm still not impressed by anybody who calls for it. Well, you are a real fucking cuck. If you're having doubts, you should leave. In the context of the film's neutrality, does it also not even make the case that armed revolution is bad? No, I don't think it is. I don't think the film is neutral. I think that it... It has this thin gauze of an attempt to appear neutral, but I think it's a pro-Israel movie Mm. and ultimately a pro-Perez movie. Like he is the he's the the stud and Rabin is the cuck (laughs) as as the way they are. You know, that's the way they're portrayed in this film. God, Our our fucking political (laughs) moment where everything is either stud or cuck is just so problematic. (laughs) (laughs) But from the very beginning, it's clear that Perez is the one with the steely eyed plan. And Rabin is the one who is who's waffling and is trying and is the politician. And that the tension between those two characters 
the defense minister whose ass really isn't on the line. Like if uh, if Rabin fucks up and this thing goes sideways and everybody dies, Perez is just standing there waiting to step into his shoes. Yeah. I mean, that's a kind of like the most interesting part of the film, though, is that like Perez puts this operation together and it's ready to go just in time and he winds up delivering a political victory to his rival right but he can't lose either way right he delivers a political victory to his rival but he's standing there too everybody knows who the stud was yeah stud versus cuck man mm. <laughs> Woo! Uh, that should be the that should be the rating system on every max fun <laughs> podcast <laughs> that all being said john uh, did you have a guy in the film someone that you most identified with i mean the air france flight engineer in a way like is the most humane person in the movie and you get and then in that climactic moment when Bose turns with the idea like i'm gonna kill everybody whether this is true or not the movie dramatizes it that he makes eye contact with the flight engineer and the flight engineer says, don't do it with his eyes. I also like the fact that he was kind of a burly guy and his clothes didn't fit him very well. And he was, you know, always sweating. I really identified with all those aspects of his character. The case that he makes for engineers in general, I really liked how that was articulated. Engineers are worth 50 revolutionaries. Like yeah. hard to argue with that. <laughs> I like um, that and lot. I know a lot of people listening to this show are like, yeah, engineers are worth 50. And they're like, not software engineers. <laughs> <laughs> but so, Software engineer, so, <laughs> like three quarters of a revolutionary. <laughs> so he's my guy for sure. For, I mean, every time he was on the screen, I wanted him to be on the screen more. Yeah, agreed. How about you, Adam? My guy uh, was another member of the flight crew, and it was uh, Captain Bacos. Uh, mm -hmm. He doesn't get as much time as the flight engineer, who is clearly uh, the coolest character in the film. I'm not going to repeat John, though. I'm going to choose Captain Bacos because uh, there's a moment in the film when he and the flight crew have an opportunity to get on one of those airport buses, and they don't take it because he sees his mission as one of making sure that all of his passengers get to their destination. It, it's a cold read on his mission as a pilot, uh, but I really sort of admired that idea, like sort of like the captain being the last one off the boat. He's he's going to be the last one in the airport terminal, making sure that everyone gets home. So I really admired him for that. You know, he won a uh, the the French awarded him the Legion of Honor for that. Yeah, my guy was the Red Army faction dude with the bad beard that didn't go. Was it Juan Pablo? His character name is not in the IMDb at at the time of recording this. So uh, he was my guy because he like was hanging around with the revolutionaries. But when uh, it was time for the rubber to meet the road, he was like, no, like we have pretty good life, right? Like <laughs> I'm not going and fucking hijacking a plane. Give me a break. <laughs> Every team needs a coach. I'm just going to call the plays from here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as a uh, as a lifelong coward and person who, you know, rarely acts on my stated beliefs, uh, I, uh, I really identified with that guy. Wow. Well, uh, that was a review of Seven Days in Entebbe. We hope to put out more special episodes like this. Hey, if you work at a movie studio and this idea of having us review your film... And give it two buses out of five. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, I, I'm down to go to some screenings. So uh, mm-hmm. holler at us. Yeah, ask us our fuck you price because we'll give it to you. <laughs> Friendly Fire is a MaximumFun.org podcast Hosted by Adam Pranica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick Produced by Rob Schulte Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr Courtesy of Stone Agate Music And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore If you'd like to continue the conversation online Please use the hashtag Friendly Fire You can find Ben on Twitter At Benjamin AHR Adam is at Cut for Time John is at John Roderick, and Rob is at Rob K. Schulte. Support the production of Friendly Fire by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.